Welcome to the UK SpacePod 2021 series. During the next few weeks, our host Susie Imber will be chatting with industry experts, covering the five key themes of this year's UK Space Conference. Space to prosper. Space to observe and sustain. Space to protect. Space to live well. Space to inspire and explore. Episode 4, Space to Live Well, is sponsored by the UK Space Agency. Hello, my name's Susie Imber. Welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast series, Space to Live Well. We're going to be discussing how we're using space technology and research platforms for the benefit of our lives here on Earth. My panel today are Libby Jackson, Christophe Lasseur and Anne McArdle. First off, could you give us a brief introduction into who you are and what you do? Hi everyone, I'm Libby. I'm Libby Jackson and I work at the UK Space Agency where I look after everything that happens in the world of human exploration. All the experiments that happen on the International Space Station, the research that's done across the country, industry that's taking part in, in everything we do in human exploration. And so I have the great joy of working with our other guests today, with Anne and with Christoph in their work. Uh, Christoph through, through our membership at the European Space Agency. My day-to-day -day job is is very much life as a civil servant, uh, looking after budgets, the community, uh, working with all, all of our different international stakeholders. Uh, but it's all about making sure the UK can get the best it can out of our investments in human exploration and the research that that enables. Hello, I'm Christophe Lasseur. I work for the European Space Agency. I am working in the technical directorate where I am in charge of what we call the life support domain. What does it mean? It means to maintain the astronaut alive when they are in space. Of course, for the International Space Station, but now we are preparing the future, returning to the moon, and of course, considering Mars transit phase. So I have the honor and duty to coordinate the research all over Europe, uh, including, of course, uh, our colleague from UK with Libby, uh, in order to be sure that all the scientists, all the engineers, are, let's say, brainstorming together and developing the proper hardware uh, in order to maintain the astronaut alive. So as you can see, it's very important that it has to be very robust and very efficient. Hello, everybody. My name is Anne McArdle. I'm Professor of Musculoskeletal Aging at the University of Liverpool. Our team are, are particularly interested in how we lose muscle um, as we age, but in other situations as well. More importantly, what can we do about that and how can we then improve the quality of life of older people in the UK particularly? And then how can we get those messages to improve our quality, our muscle function across to the public? Great, thank you so much. I'm going to start with an opening question to Libby actually, which is, what is it about doing research in space that makes it different from on Earth? Like, What's the use of it to everyday people? We are all sitting here in our chairs, uh, keeping ourselves upright, fighting against the force of gravity that's pulling us down. When we take things into space to the International Space Station, they no longer feel the effects of gravity. Gravity is still there. The Earth hasn't vanished. But because the International Space Station is flying along at 17 and a half thousand miles an hour, falling towards Earth and then curving around it, everything inside is falling. And that means we can research how things behave when they can't feel gravity. 
we're all so used to gravity that it's sort of there every time we, we try and do anything that if scientists want to understand well what's happening without it what does gravity doing on my material or on my pieces of muscle we can go to the international space station or into space we, we can no longer feel gravity and we can see different processes we can understand how things work better when you talk about humans going into space uh, and not feeling gravity the astronauts living and working on the space station they essentially get old really quickly their bones and their muscles get weaker their eyesight changes uh, the fluid moves around through their body their skin gets thinner lots of things that happen to us all here on earth as we get older and that's why researchers like Anne and the team at Liverpool are able to use space to get different data points to find out more about how muscles change um, and that will help all of us so Anne, you're looking at how all of us can age more healthily. Um, what are you hoping to find out? Well, I think if I, if I just take a little step backwards and tell you a bit about why we're undertaking the research. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that the ability to be able to undertake bioscience research in space is a real game changer, particularly in a lot of research areas, but particularly in the area that our team are interested in, in muscle wasting and muscle ageing. And so, you know, we're all aware of the rapid increase in lifespan. Um, it's one of our scientific success stories. Um, so Professor Tom Kirkwood at the University of Newcastle has actually undertaken a calculation that shows every day we live five hours longer. So a child born today will live on average five hours longer than a child born yesterday. That brings with it, though, major challenges. So we're not seeing health span keeping up with this. So we're seeing more people with major problems that Libby just mentioned, eyesight problems, hearing problems, and generally more frail people. And that's where skeletal muscle comes in. We're all familiar with how we lose muscle as we age, and we lose it at a rate, as we get older, at a rate of about 2% uh, a year. And that accelerates a little as we get older as well. Um, our team are particularly interested in what leads to this loss of muscle mass. Now, astronauts, as you also are fully aware, also, and as Libby mentioned, also lose their muscle mass, but at a much accelerated rate in microgravity. And what we think is that the mechanisms by which old people lose their, their muscle mass is very similar to the, or are very similar to the mechanisms by which we see this accelerated muscle mass in space. The problem is that we only have, both for old people and for astronauts, we only have one real major treatment, and it's not ideal, and that's exercise. So astronauts will exercise in space. Older people, if they undertake particularly resistance exercise, can maintain muscle mass to a certain extent, but it's not ideal. So what we're going to do with microage is that we've built some mini muscles, so some 3D muscle constructs, and we're going to send them up to the International Space Station we're going to subject them to a, an exercise protocol and look to see how they adapt following that exercise. What we think we'll see is a maladaptation in, in those muscles in a similar way to we see this maladaptation or a failure to adapt in, in muscles of older people. Can I just ask you, Anne, how do you subject your muscles to an exercise regime in space? What does that look like? So a really good question. That's been one of the major challenges of this program of work. Um, usually we would use uh, equipment that would fill a desk uh, if we were to, to look at muscle constructs in vivo in culture. 
Um, the first thing we had to do, obviously, with the the volume, I should say, rather than space um, limitations in space, uh, is we had to com- compact that down to so desk size with a, a large PC and so on had to be compacted down to the size of a cigarette packet. That was a major challenge, but we've achieved it actually by working with engineers, um, fluid dynamics people, and so on, and some of the uh, industrial partners. So. What we're going to do is to electrically stimulate mus- those muscle constructs to contract. So just like you're, if you move your hand now, you're actually activating those muscles naturally through your nerve impulse. We can, do, we can mimic that by electrically stimulating the muscles to contract. And so we're, almost, we're simulating muscle contractions. Obviously, the major benefit of that is we're not biopsying. We're not asking astronauts to exercise and we're not having to biopsy them um, upon the International Space Station too. Great. I think one of the statistics that you just gave us is actually mind-blowing. I had no idea that a child born tomorrow would live five hours longer than one born today. I think that's absolutely incredible and it probably just really highlights to us how important this research is. So you've discussed a bit about your research and how it benefits those on Earth. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the future of this research area and what you're going to do next. There are lots of ways forward from this research. You know, um, what we're aiming to do is to identify a common mechanism, um, common biochemical mechanism. And actually, the development of of large scale and analysis of of small tissues um, has really allowed us to do this. So we can look at the muscles as uh, as they return to us and we can compare that with what happens in Uh, muscles of older people, for example, and in other disorders as well. Um, And we can target that for pharmacology interventions, um, or we could maybe intervene with a mixed exercise and pharmacological intervention. So I think that would, or nutritional even, and I think that would provide the next step forward, really. So once we understand where this common mechanism of muscle loss occurs, then development of interventions should come um, relatively straightforwardly. Fantastic. And Libby, how does this experiment that we're talking about right now fit into the broader scale of life sciences research that we see up on the International Space Station? There are so many experiments happening up there that there's over 250 that take place um, in any given six month period. Um, Lots of them are life sciences. There are physical sciences experiments as well. There are material sciences experiments. Some of them are are looking uh, as Anne's work is doing. Some of them are looking at how can we understand processes in humans or in biology that that help us all back on earth and some of them which is a bit more to do with Christoph's work is is looking at how might we uh, be able to sustain human life into the solar system a bit more we've been living and working on the international space station now continuously for 20 years over 20 years um, and have learned so much but we're still there in the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. We're still able to send resources up to the space station regularly. If we're going to explore and send humans back to the moon and one day onto Mars, which is the horizon goal that space agencies around the world share, we're going to have to figure out how to do that, how to live more sustainably, how to reuse the resources that we've got because we can't take everything that we need. And that's where there are so many fantastic crossovers and benefits to what we all need to do back on Earth to live more sustainably on Earth. 
I just want to pick up on, on something Anne mentioned, which was um, the the challenges they faced in shrinking their experiment for, from a sort of tabletop size down to a matchbox size. That's what going into space forces us to do with anything. We are always constrained um, in terms of how much power you've got, how much mass you've got, what temperatures you've got to expose things to. Up in space, it can be minus 200 degrees uh, in the shadows, plus 200 degrees Celsius in the sunshine. These are challenging environments. And it demands um, innovative solutions. Invariably, when we do that in space, we start going, oh, great, now we can do it and we can use that back on Earth and we can see uh, how we can build things. You know, Anne's got a smaller piece of hardware that um, may, she can perhaps say more about how it will go into other things. We see it over and over again with, with metallic 3D printing. We'll, we'll hear more from, from Christoph about how his research is, is helping us all back on Earth. And this is one of the great benefits of doing anything in space, but particularly all this research, is that it makes us think of things in in new ways. That's great. And actually, that leads me on to discuss with Christoph a little bit about his research. So um, we talk a lot about the circular economy here on the Earth, and I think that's in the forefront of, of our minds these days. But can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing on the circular economy in space? Yeah. You have to realize that uh, today, as uh, Libby mentioned, the International Space Station is still very close uh, from the Earth. So everything you need to to stay alive, which I mean first, water, food, oxygen, we can send cargo. So to simplify, every three, four months, uh, we send food, water, and oxygen, and we connect to the space station, and here it is. But this strategy doesn't work if you quit the Earth orbit. Yeah? If you want to go to Mars, it's becoming absolutely impossible. And you have to realize as well that just to stay alive, I'm not speaking about clothes, I'm not speaking about hygiene, about speaking about shampoo or whatsoever, cosmetics. Just to stay alive, you consume five kilos per day per person. Yeah. So if you consider a crew of six, if you consider a mission of a thousand days, you are around 30 tons just to keep the astronaut alive. Yeah? And at the top of it, you have you need all the hardware to keep the temperature at the proper level, the humidity, to trap the CO2 that you produce, the microbial contaminants, and so on. So it's a huge mass. Yeah, it's really huge. So what we are trying to do in order to avoid this and to make it successful is to try to recycle absolutely everything on board. Yeah, so it's really there. We didn't know at that time eh, when we started 30 years ago, but it's really now what people call circular economy. We use, we take the waste, we transform them either in oxygen, either in water, either in material for spare, spare parts. And we go to 3D printing as well, either even to food. Yeah. So that's really the challenge. But to do that in a very constrained environment, such as a space vehicle, is a real challenge because we know that it's already very difficult to do it on Earth. But in a very airtight container where energy, mass, safety is uh, uh, the level is extremely high in terms of requirement and it's becoming even more challenging and at the top of it you have to add the fact that you are in microgravity and a large part of the process we are used to uh, doesn't work in microgravity so we have to separate we have to mix differently this is where the, the deal and the knowledge we gain from all the european scientists is very useful too 
So thinking a bit about beyond Earth orbit, are you now thinking about ways that you can use some of the resources if we went back to the moon, for example, uh, maybe using uh, the the soil there to construct habitation modules, for example? Is that is that something that you're working towards in the future? Yeah, absolutely. This is the idea. Uh, we are trying to use any resources that we would like to, to be able uh, to maintain the life, either, for example, using uh, in-situ resource utilization, if we, if we can, yeah? But any resources is a plus, yeah? Uh, so, for example, uh, we are considering issues such as clauses, and you use them one, two, three, do you need to wash them or do you use them as a substrate in order to produce something else? It's always the idea. You never, you are never fixed to a pathway. You have to consider several criteria to be, to be able to select the best pathway. It will be the mass of the hardware. It will be the energy you need. Will it be safe? Uh, will it be robust? How many hours of the crew time does it need in order to be able to solve this issue? So you always have a very strong system view in order to be able to do your selection. Yeah. Very interesting. So we've been discussing ways that we can use space technology to um, improve our lives down here on the Earth. Um, Libby, are there any good examples of how there's new tech that's been developed on the Earth that we can adapt for space purposes? There's so many great examples. The challenge of keeping humans alive and well and fit and healthy in space. Uh, requires new solutions. And there's one great example at the minute where we've taken some technology um, that's been developed on Earth for terrestrial benefit, but also using space. And it's now going to head up to the International Space Station and again, perhaps one day on to Moon and Mars. Um, it's a fantastic piece of equipment um, called Tempus Pro, uh, which has been developed by a UK company called RDT. And, and what it is, is, is essentially um, a magic box that you can plug lots of different medical pieces of equipment into. So imagine you've gone to your doctor's surgery for a, a little checkup um, and they, they sort of the doctor might go and take um, a stethoscope and then take your blood pressure and then look at your eyes and, and, and plug all, use all these different pieces of equipment to look at your different uh, vital signs. Um, and the company essentially have, have shrunk uh, this into a box. You can plug all these different peripherals in but the exciting thing that uses space is that um, they have been using satellite communication technology so that you can take this box anywhere, which means on Earth they've been using it for first responders. They, they can be uh, taking um, a patient's heart rate or, or, or vital signs as they're whizzing their way to the hospital. Um, and then when they get to the hospital, the data's already been downloaded into the sort of waiting consultants person. So they've got all that data to um, enable them to see what's going on. It's being used out in the field um, uh, in remote places where we need access to that because you can have uh, somebody in the field uh, taking these measurements, somebody else remotely looking at those measurements and understanding them. Now, that's great, of course, for, for everybody on Earth and understanding the remoteness. And this is where space is looking at that technology and, and human space flight and saying, this is really handy for keeping astronauts alive, too. Because if we're going to have astronauts 
on the space station where they can't easily get home. Maybe one day when they're uh, on the moon, we want to be able to, to keep them fit and healthy. And so we're now taking this technology, spacifying it uh, and all the challenges of that. Um, and we will see it being used uh, on the International Space Station and then say maybe one day uh, on the moon and Mars in the coming years. And it is this great sort of circular way um, of technologies um, going into space, coming out of space. Um, the common goal in all of it to me is, is humans and life and, and biology and, and, and living things, whether it's not just humans, but plants, animals. If we can look at how we can keep them alive in space, we always understand better how to keep everybody fit and healthy and alive back on Earth. And actually, Christoph, you mentioned uh, 3D printing uh, earlier, and I just wonder if you could kind of expand on that. Is that a technology that we developed on Earth that then later was used in space? And is that proving a game changer in terms of what we're able to do uh, on the International Space Station? What, what we observe is uh, when we do joint research uh, with terrestrial industry, uh, and we lead as well, we put the space requirement, is always very useful. It's always very useful because the space requirements are very hard, so it push, it challenge uh, the terrestrial industry uh, to le to the extremities of the know-how, and and this always bring uh, not only publication but really spin-off. I mean, uh, speaking about, uh, for example, in the, in the domain of life support, we have already created several uh, spin-off just for terrestrial commercial activities in terms of water recycling, in terms of waste recycling. And in terms of 3D printing, for example, uh, now we are looking at ways uh, to transform waste in, in algae. And this biomass, that which is, which is properly selected, can be used as the ink of the printer. Yeah? So really, we are now uh, producing some spare parts because, of course, you cannot transport all the spare parts of all the hardware that will be in the space vehicles. So you don't know which one will fail first. You can try to predict, but you are not sure. And you are trying to use your waste to transform them and produce the spare part you will use in order to fix the problem of your hardware. So that's, for example, an example of circular system. Yeah? You don't transport anymore. I just wanted to pick up, and because I, I I know a little bit about Christoph's work, and to me one of my favourite examples is is what you're doing with the water at the tennis, and I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about that because I think that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, water is of course a, a very important metabolic need, and you you consume roughly at the minimum three liters of water per person per day. Yeah, so of course we our efforts we are very much focused on what we call grey water, yeah? which is to simplify. Uh, shower water, hygiene water, and so on. So we have developed a technology in order to be able to recycle this. And uh, this technology so far uh, is now becoming very interesting for uh, what they call uh, sustainable buildings or building of the future, where they are trying to recycle the water at the level of the building. And uh, in uh, Roland Garros, yeah, uh, which is uh, the French Open of tennis, uh, it has been used for the last two years to recycle all the grey water uh, of the sportman and, and sportwoman. Yeah? Uh, so this is very important to recover water. And I could even joke, it will be even more important if we are speaking about Wimbledon, because we will need water to be sure that the court remain green. Yeah? 
but uh, that's uh, not limited to grey water because uh, most probably uh, we will use urine uh, as well in order to produce a fertilizer. Yeah? So it's another technology uh, that we are dealing with as well. Uh, we are trying to recover the water of urine, but much more than this, we urine contains as well other compounds which make sense to be able to use as a fertilizer, so, and really in order to control and valorize as much as possible human waste. Gosh, really nothing is wasted. I think we could all learn something from the research you're doing uh, when we think about our everyday lives. Um, a question for all of you, actually, in any order, is can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges associated with doing these kind of experiments uh, in space? Yes. Uh, so certainly from a, a muscle point of view, there are some serious challenges with undertaking the sort of research that we, we do in uh, the restricted um environment of space so there are challenges as i mentioned earlier in the miniaturization of the of the equipment and also building a, a viable muscle construct and we've we've got some some amazing junior members of staff who've really worked hard to to build a, a, our 3d muscle constructs and make sure that they're actually viable for a long time um, no mean feat really with muscle cells and so particularly um, Samantha Jones has worked on this. Uh, she's looked at the effects of vibration on getting those constructs up, obviously the vibration of launch, temperature changes while they're sitting on the pad and while they get up and, and are being put into the incubator. Um, we had to really automate the, the system as well. Um, you know, nobody wants the astronauts spending a lot of time having to run these experiments. It almost needs to be plug and play. And so, you know, it was it, it was an exciting project. It is an exciting project in that it's really brought together a whole host of, of experts in different fields, fields that we wouldn't usually talk to very well. Um, we, we sit on our own little areas a lot of the time. So, so that's been challenging, but actually really exciting. I just have a quick question for you, Anne. Yeah. Um, you're talking about sending muscle samples into space, and I just wonder whether the radiation damage affects your samples as they're up in space? Um, at the levels that we see, it's unlikely that that will happen, but it's something that we will certainly um, consider when we see the, uh, the the muscle samples return to Earth and we'll have a comparison of on-ground studies. And we, we also have uh, several other controls that we run in there. So um, we think it's unlikely, but it's a possibility. Sorry, that was out of the blue. I just got interested in your subject. Um, <laughs> all right, where are we going next? It's something I learned recently. And there's another group of researchers in the UK who are experts in kidney function. Now, what's kidney function got to do with space? Well, they've started getting uh, interested in talking uh, to, to researchers over in NASA. Um, they know that kidneys are the most radiation sensitive part of the body. And if we are going to send humans to the moon or onto Mars outside the protection of our Earth's magnetic field, where we're going to get bombed, well, the astronauts will get bombarded by the solar radiation, the most critical part is the kidney. And that is likely to be the limiting function in, in why we might do that. So it's going to be really important to bring their research in. Uh, it's something that I'm just starting to talk to some researchers about now. I should give them a shout out. This is uh, Ben Walsh at uh, UCL. Um, but... It's another example of how we bring these different bits of life sciences in. And, and as they sort of look at more things, 
they go, oh, well, what can space teach us? And it will, again, um, you know, make us look at kidneys in different way and understand different things. It will lead to understanding of, of dialysis and how to help everybody there um, who suffers from kidney problems. And it's, it's always this, this, this leaping from one thing to another that you get in space research, like in any field, really, um, that I find so fascinating and so exciting. And it, it, it's, it's these benefits that you never quite know where they're going to come from, but why uh, we make the case to invest um, in human exploration, in scientific research, to, to ultimately bring back the benefits to everybody on Earth and to help us all live better. But clearly, as we look to heading to the moon, and as we've talked about briefly heading to Mars in the future, I guess this is going to become even more important because those astronauts will be further away. They're going to be exposed to the rigours of living in space for longer. And I, and I guess it's going to be vital for us to, to try to understand how to keep them healthy. And there's always the fair question about, well, why do this? Why should we do it? Why, why wouldn't we go and find this research in other ways? But I think as Anne and Christoph are both showing in their research, unless they'd have had the opportunity and the thought to go and put it into space, they wouldn't have been miniaturizing their equipment. They wouldn't have been looking at how to recycle water and, and the spin-offs that we're seeing in sustainability there. You have to have these, um, these challenges to solve to, to bring those unexpected um, benefits. I should say unexpected benefits. They're not unexpected. We just can't always forecast exactly what they're going to be. Yeah, I think Libby is perfectly right. The fact that the challenges force us to reinvestigate and to have this horizontal brainstorming, you know, with the expert of chemistry, microbiology, medicine, material, uh, mathematics, and, and so on, brings to something that from time to time we never thought so. I just would like to take an example. We have been trying to transform uh, organic waste yeah, for quite a while. Yeah? And we thought that one bacteria could do the job. Yeah? And we investigate a lot this bacteria, and, and it was doing a reasonable job in terms of transformation. And then during the test, we wanted to know if this bacteria could be toxic for the crew. Because, of course, if you cultivate millions of bacteria, it could be toxic. So we checked that. And we discover that this bacteria, first of all, is not toxic, but if you consume it, it has a very good anti-cholesterol effect on the bad cholesterol. So we, in fact, uh, carry on this research with some colleagues which are more interested in ph the pharmaceutical world. We took in the order of 15 patents, and now it's becoming a product. Uh, we have tests on humans and so on. We create a spin-off companies. I mean, we. Uh, the actors of the of this research have created a spin-off company, and it's really now active for the uh, European citizen. Yeah? So that's really starting for good research, but not with this objective. Yeah? It's called serendipity. In fact, it's when you discover something which you are not really looking for. I think one theme that's come across throughout our discussion actually has been interdisciplinary work and how we, we benefit across different sectors and how talking to people in different areas is really, really beneficial. And I think sometimes in the scientific community, we, we get a little focus on our own thing and maybe we don't communicate well enough with other people. So I guess that's also really important if we're thinking about benefits beyond what we can immediately see in our own research. Yeah, I think if if I can just pick up on that. So um, certainly, you know, the miniaturization of the kit that we're sending up with MicroAge 
the the potential use for that now is you know we've massively improved low volume high throughput analysis for drug testing and that will in itself have a major impact uh, on earth um so it, we can't really under understate this um development of teams working together to to do this it, it's been absolutely stunning to see as i've worked alongside the university of liverpool um it, it started out we you gave some funding to to and i forgive me and i will get this wrong but i sort of get the, the biology muscle team at the university of liverpool and then they pull in their their electrical engineers and now the electrical engineers have got their master students getting involved and helping to look at different um uh, was it switches or pumps or part of the design and how that might work and you're now seeing them learning more about what space might offer you um and even if they don't go anywhere space has this fantastic ability to capture and inspire people and make people work different ways. So you've seen people get excited about electrical engineering and they've got involved in this project. Um, and now we've got electrical engineers being developed. And of course, electrical engineering is so vital to everything we do because everything we touch um, is you know, powered by electricity and, and needs that technology. And it's this, yeah, this spark from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, um, that has been marvelous to see in the project is what we see uh, in so much that I mean, all, everything that, that, that we invest in and we get involved with. And, and it's always a delight to, to discover where we're going to go with stuff. I mean, just to take that a little bit a, a, a little bit further. Um, so, healthy aging is not a trendy topic to to get the message across to the general public about what you need to do, exercise. You know, people like it initially, then it falls off, and so on. But space is exciting, and what we've seen is a real um, change in the uh, the integration of our outreach activities and the interest in our outreach activities because we're using space as a platform to promote healthy aging that's made a real difference to to our outreach as well yeah if i may i would like to add as well that the fact that we are multidisciplinary we are multicultural as well uh, and it's extremely uh, let's say interesting to see how around the challenges if you have uh, UK citizens, if you have French, you have German, you have Swiss, you have Spanish, all together, they have different cultures, they have different approach, they have different way to approach a system. And this all together make it very robust yeah? because you don't, you have a different angle of uh, approach of the difficulties. And that's a very good, very good things as well. And the, the link that we see these days, especially with outreach, with education. Yeah, with university, with master students, for example, with the Erasmus program or the young graduate in ESA. This uh, crossover, different countries, this brainstorming is very good as well because it attracts young generation to science. And you have to know that it's difficult these days to attract young citizens to uh, scientific research. And it's very good because space is very, uh, very attractive feel for this generation and we like it very much in this sense. Yeah. Libby, I'm going to give you the last word on this actually because I know the UK Space Agency do a lot of outreach activities. Human spaceflight really captures the imagination. Um, we see it in the interest from the press and the public. Um, whenever there are stories um, around the world, you know, new astronauts going into space, new, new flights into space, um, people get excited. 
because because it's humans because because somehow we can talk to them we saw it through through tim peak's flight which was five years ago now um we really uh wanted to use that mission to to connect with as many young people as we could and we had a fantastic outreach program we had in the end over two million children across one in three schools get involved in the mission uh learn about things in all sorts of different subjects beauty of space you you can talk about it uh in science lessons but you can also talk about it in art lessons or music lessons or in english lessons it, it gets you thinking in lots of different ways and just recently um when we marked five years since since tim's flight we went back and we asked people what has it meant to you how has it inspired you and we were inundated with stories of people who following that mission um just from people who just said, oh, I want to go and do the things I really enjoy and sort of have gone and been inspired to follow those things. People who decided to study astronomy um, or astro astronomy at GCSE or went on to study astrophysics or space science at university. And then people who have been inspired to come into the space sector and move to space careers because of it. So we really have seen the benefits through that. But we've heard about it in, in all these discussions. To me, the great benefits are, are all of it that comes together to help everybody back on earth and how the research, the science, the technology, the engineering, um, we are all doing it because we're all sitting here on earth and some of it is going to help astronauts go out into the solar system, but we're never not going to reap the benefits um, of that research and that technology uh, for everybody living back on earth. And we just want to make everybody's lives better. Where do you see the future of research on the International Space Station? There's so much still to discover. One of the exciting topics for me that's coming up um, is starting to see uh, the development of new materials. We're, we're learning how to manufacture things in space. Uh, when you don't feel the effects of gravity, you can rearrange all your little uh, atoms and particles and everything in different ways. One of the places we're looking at doing that is with drugs and pharmaceuticals. You know, can we manufacture uh, things in space that we can't on Earth. Can you rearrange those little things in a way that means we can find drugs um, that could help uh, with all sorts of more research? We're looking at how cancer tumours uh, develop in space. That's going to have fantastic uh, benefits. Um, I could go on and on. There's, there's loads and loads that's go, uh, happening. Uh, but it's why it's really important to have that research platform in microgravity. Um, and I, we will, the space station will be there uh, for many years yet. And uh, hopefully there'll be something that follows it in time to come. Yeah, I think I, will, I would like to add something at the top of, of research because um, people are sometimes thinking that space is too complex, is too high level. And young generation and even scientists currently active doesn't dare to join space research because they think it's too difficult. And, and that's not true, first of all, <laughs> because we are not all that bright, that first thing to say. But I just would like to take a, a small example what happened to me in, in London, in Chelsea. I participate to the uh, Royal uh, Botanical uh, Expo a few years ago. I was invited by our UK colleagues. Yeah. And I explained that we intend to grow vegetables, to feed the astronaut, and so on. And suddenly, and by explaining this, I had a lot of interest by all the gardeners, you know, in, especially in UK, where there is a lot of people which are fans of gardening 
and how to water tomatoes, how to uh, position this plant versus the other one, and so on. And this, I mean, this knowledge is not always documented. Yeah? And if we could find a way to, let's say, involve all this generation of people, which are sometimes pensioners, yeah, uh, who have accumulated know-how about, I, I, I take the example of garden, but there is certainly others. We can learn a lot and they can participate to a space mission indirectly, of course, but they could participate. They could tell us this I've been doing or they, you know, there's millions of plants. Yeah. Ideally, we will have to characterize all these plants in order to be able to select the best one for the space mission. But if we are able to involve the citizens, the European citizen, in order to participate to this research, by statistics, we will learn a lot. Yeah? And that will be extremely interesting as well. And I think that's where people of the space agencies uh, shall consider in the future, because we shall not consider that we know everything and the terrestrial actors knows a lot as well. Eh? And that should be a common effort. I think you're right. And I think the other thing about space, which often is overlooked, is that people think that we're looking for space scientists, but our sector is hugely diverse and we don't need necessarily just space scientists. I hope we need some because that's what I do. But um, there are many other things that we need as well. You know, we need people to think about architecture and how you manufacture a place where people can live. We need people like Christophe thinking about um, how we have the materials and recycle the materials we need. We need people who work in the press and we need people who work in the law. And actually, you know, space really is for uh, for everyone uh, in many senses, I think. I, I think in the broader aspect of aging as well, you know, there's a big push um, in cities to make cities age friendly. And I think we can learn a lot from the development of those cities and, and the development of, of um, environments in space and vice versa. We've heard a lot about this microage experiment that you've been working on, and can you tell us when it's going to launch and when we might expect to start seeing some results? So we're very excited that microage is planned to launch on SpaceX 24 on the 1st of December this year. Um, our team of three postdocs will be going out to the Kennedy Space Center uh, towards the end of October. Um, obviously, because of COVID regulations, we'll isolate and then we'll go into the labs at the Kennedy to start to build the 3D constructs ready to get them sent up in the uh, in the launch. So I'm very excited about that. The other thing that we're doing is developing a microage app, and uh, we will be advertising that app on social media as soon as it's launched, where you can follow uh, in real time and also with various... Um, pieces of information about microage, which will be updated as well. That sounds great. So look out for that, everybody, coming in the new year. Uh, we've had such a wide-ranging discussion today, um, focusing on how space technology uh, can help us here on Earth, but also how some of the terrestrial technology that's being developed can be applied to space. I'd just like to thank our three panellists again today. We had Libby, Christophe and Anne. Remember, this is one of a series of five podcasts, so please check out the others if you're interested in hearing more. Thank you very much. The UK Space Conference 2021 online will be held on the 27th to the 29th of September 2021. Tickets are on sale now, so please go to www.spaceconference.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn with the hashtags UKSpace21 and UKSC21. And this episode was sponsored 
by the UK Space Agency.